It would be great if you could open up a Bible at Romans chapter 1. If uh, you're sort of 11 to 14, JF age, or even a bit older, there are some uh, sheet stands, got some. So if you stick a paw in the air and you'd like one of these uh, to follow, uh, do, do that, Dan will bring you one. I think you're okay, Dan. We either, they all have them, or you're safe. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we come to your word now. We come expectantly. We come asking that you'd speak into our hearts. We come longing to know you. We come wanting to meet your son in the power of your spirit. Uh, Please, our Father, uh, do as you've promised and feed our souls for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. There's actually only one reason why we're all here this morning. Unless you accidentally think you've come to B&Q and uh, you're wondering what's going on. There's only one thing that's brought us here beneath all the other reasons. And it comes in Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Uh, It's just four words at the end of verse 4. Here it is. Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the reason we're all here. Jesus, the man from Nazareth who was crucified around 2,000 years ago was the Christ, is the Christ, God's rescuing promised king come for his people who has been raised from the dead so that now he is our Lord, the one who lives and has ascended to heaven and rules over the whole of creation. He's seated in glory. He's all-powerful, yet he's our Lord. He's the God who invites us to call him friend. The Lord who's poured his spirit into our hearts so that we can know him personally, intimately. We're here because Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is the Lord. You see, uh, Jesus isn't um, just like an an icon on the desktop of your life. So so you know your phone, you've got icons, haven't you? You get lost, you press the Google Maps icon, shows you where you are. You know, you want cheap accommodation, you press the Airbnb icon. And you want religion, you press the Jesus icon of your life. But but Jesus isn't the icon of your religious life. He is the operating system. He is the one who is holding all things together. He is the one through whom and by whom God works in the whole of the creation he's made. You see, Jesus isn't just the operating system of your life. He's the operating system of everything. And when you begin to to grasp that a bit, you can begin to see why Paul goes on in in this letter of Romans with the sort of emotion that he does. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is where it's at. Just to remind you what's going on in Romans, the Apostle Paul has written a letter to a a church he's he's never been to, a church he, he didn't start, a church he doesn't know. It's a church in the capital of the known world, Rome. Paul's longed to visit this church, but in AD 49, the Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome and probably kicked all the Christians out at the same time. In AD 54, Nero becomes emperor when Claudius dies. And believe it or not, Nero was reasonable when he kicked off his, minister, his, uh, his rule, and uh, he let the Jews and the Christians back in. So around about AD 57, Paul's writing this letter to these Christians in Rome, real historic fact about the good news of Jesus Christ. Look how Paul feels about them in verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. 
Uh, there's nothing more exciting for Paul than, than hearing of people coming to follow Jesus because he is Lord. And therefore he's praying continuously for them. He, he longs to come to them. Not so he can share holiday stories or, or have a barbecue together. Uh, look why he longs to come in verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He, he wants to share a, a gift of grace and an encouragement with them. Verse 14, he doesn't just want to encourage them. He says, I'm a debtor to everyone. I want to encourage all people. Look at verse 14. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. Literally, it says to Greeks and barbarians. Uh, If you were one of those cultured Romans who spoke Greek, that was the sort of language of the day at the time, the non-Greek speakers, they just sounded like a bunch of uncouth yobs. All you heard them go was, ba, 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 ba. So you call them barbaroi, and we get our word barbarians from that. Now, I don't know how you feel this morning, whether you think you're a, you know, a cultured Greek or an uncouth barbarian, whether you think you're wise or whether you think you're an idiot. Paul says to you, no, what you need to do, what I long to do for you is preach Jesus Christ, the, the good news about him. I'm committed to every Tom, Dick, and Harriet in the world. They need to hear about Jesus. And why? Well, look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You see, when Paul put on events to tell others about Jesus, you know, whether that was a quiz night or a men's curry evening, he didn't print the flyer with a big picture of a premiership footballer and then in font, not actually visible to the naked eye, put down at the bottom a short talk about the Christian faith. When when Paul invited people to things, he didn't say, fantastic questions, free snacks, cash prize, Jesus. Did, did, you, did, you say something, did you say something else, Paul? No. No. No questions, snacks, cash. Sure you said something else? No, 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 nothing else. He, he was not ashamed of the gospel. Now, now, here's my problem. I am ashamed of the gospel quite a lot of the time. You know, I, I'm paid to tell people about Jesus. And it can, it can be quite embarrassing. Oddly, it's not that embarrassing in this situation. I mean, you've all rocked up knowing what you're getting. <laughs> But, but it's much harder one-to-one, isn't it? You know, with my sister, or with an old friend I meet from school, or a person I get chatting to in Little. I am that irritating bloke that chats to you in Little, I'm sorry. You know, I, I can talk about church, because I work for one, that's okay. I can even use the word being a Christian, but, but talking about Jesus, I'm embarrassed. I have, to, I have to go through a pain threshold to do that. But, but, but that's not Paul's situation. So why is Paul unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord? Well, well verse 16 and 17 tell us, there's a, there's a word that's repeated in these verses. Just look down at them. It's the reason word, for. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And then for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. Here are the reasons, says Paul, in verse 16 and 17, why I'm not ashamed about Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three glorious gospel facts, three things to move our hearts so that maybe we would just be a little bit more shameless about our beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here's the first thing we're going to see. We're going to see he's unashamed because God 
powerfully saves anyone. He's not ashamed because God powerfully saves anyone. Look at verse 16 with me. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's the power of God that brings salvation. And that salvation word means to be rescued from a dire peril, a death-bringing situation. So, so the salvation that the gospel brings is not just, say, a warm, fuzzy feeling now. Oh, God loves me. It's not just certain forgiveness. I know I'm forgiven by him. It's not something that just helps my life today a bit. It is to be saved from a dangerous position, a dire peril, a death-bringing situation. And for the first readers of, of Romans, they had no doubt what that was. Because they knew that through the Bible, God had promised that one day he would judge the entire world. That, that every man, woman, and child would have to give an account to their creator for the way that they have lived, not according to our standards, but his. The way we have loved, not according to our standards, but his. And on that day, they were going to need some way to get through the judgment of God. And as we look in Romans, we find Paul spells out why everyone at that judgment is guilty. Everyone needs something that brings salvation. Uh, Verse 18, actually, of our reading from next week starts with the word for. Paul goes on to say, for, here's the reason we need salvation. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In other words, says Paul, if you doubt you need saving, have a look at the world around you. What God's done is he's already started to show his wrath, his righteous anger, by the way he's given the world around us over to what we want. Over to us ruling it as we want with no reference to him. If you, if you don't think, if you think we need saving, just click on BBC News. Have a read and think, is this a world that's functioning very well? But, but if we need saving from ourselves now, how much more will we need saving from the God who will hold us to his perfect standards one day? You see, God loves his world too much just to ignore all the evil and wrong forever. There will be a day when he judges it. And on that day, people need saving. And Paul says, this gospel, this good news of Jesus, is the power of God that brings salvation. That's why he says he's a debtor to everyone in verse 14. Because it brings salvation. All people need that salvation, whether they think they're wise or whether they think they're stupid. All people need it. This week in the news has been the, the inquest into last week's West, last year's uh, Westminster terror attack, hasn't it? I mean, there have been some harrowing, harrowing scenes shown on, uh, people have filmed on camera. Uh, there's been a testifying, witnesses testifying to, to some of the horror of the event. And then what happened a few weeks later, we had, we had the London Bridge attack. And what was extraordinary in, in both those events was the way that some people didn't run away from the danger... They ran towards it, especially police officers. Police officers armed with a baton. And if you've seen a police officer's baton today, it's just like the aerial off your car, but slightly bigger. They ran towards the danger. 
Because they could see people need saving. They could see it was a life and death situation. It was a dire peril. You see, the first reason that Paul's unashamed of the gospel, the first reason that he, in many ways, if you read his life, runs towards the danger of telling people about Jesus, is he sees people need saving. It's a dire situation. Not from a terrorist attack, but from the righteous punishment of God. And he doesn't do it just knowing that they might be saved. It's a hope of people being saved. This is the power of God to save people. God saves people through the gospel. Most of us here know that. Because he's done it for us. The gospel is the only way God saves people. And it is the powerful way God saves people. And now think of someone you know. Think of the person maybe you think is least likely ever to trust in Jesus. Maybe, maybe they're the person who's really aggressive about your religion. Who, who every time you even, even think of mentioning the word church, says, I don't want, I don't want any of that here. It's okay. If you, I don't want any of your religion here. Maybe it's the person you can't talk to on your street because they're just so intimidating. You know, they blank you. They're aggressive. They have a go at you about the way you park their, your car. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to anyone. God can save them. The gospel is powerful to save. You can pray for that relative who you just can't get a word in edgeways. That colleague who seems, seems to just be totally uninterested. That spouse who you love dearly who's nice to you but for years has not been interested in the gospel because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to anyone that's why Paul isn't ashamed of it but but how does it bring salvation to anyone here's the second thing Paul's unashamed because in the gospel God righteously gives righteousness in the gospel God righteously gives righteousness look at verse 17 with me For the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now now righteousness, the righteousness of God, is first God's character. You see, God is righteous. He is just. He is good. He's never unfaithful. He never does evil. He does not lie. God is righteous. You can trust God because of who he is. And that is revealed in what he does. God acts righteously. He always judges impartially. He is always steadfast in love. He's always faithful to his promises. In the Old Testament we call those his covenant promises. His covenant promises. He is the promise-keeping God. And God's righteousness has been seen all the way through the Old Testament. But, but now it's revealed fully. It's a, it's a bit like a street at night time. If you wander around a, a street around this estate at night time with the street lights on, you can, you can see what the street looks like, you can see pretty much everything. But, but actually there are dark corners and bits are obscured and you don't see it clearly. But when the sun comes up in the morning, everything in the street is revealed. You see everything clearly. And that's what happens with the Lord Jesus. Everything is there in the Old Testament, but there are dark corners, and we we don't see God's righteousness fully. But with Jesus, 
Well, it is gloriously and utterly revealed in brilliant light that God is righteous and he acts righteously. Now, that word righteous comes out eight times in, in the book of Romans, in this letter. Five of those come in one chapter, in chapter three. And in that chapter, Paul focuses on one thing, on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross where Jesus dies that God's righteousness is most beautifully revealed. But because we see at the cross that God is perfectly just, that he will punish all sin, all rejection of him, all rebellion against him, all wrongdoing will be punished. Justice must be satisfied. But at the same time, at the cross, we see that he has taken the punishment for our sin in the person of his innocent son. He he chooses humbly the Lord of the universe to come and take what we deserve from him. The one we have offended becomes the one who takes our offense. The one we have wronged becomes the one who bears the way we have wronged him. Because the most precious way that Paul talks about righteousness is as a gift from God. The gift of a a right relationship with him. A right standing with him. The gift of being treated as righteous, perfect, like his son, the Lord Jesus, when actually we are unrighteous. Of being treated as innocent, like Jesus was, when actually we are guilty. Of being given Jesus' status as obedient child of God, when actually we are, by nature, rebels against the God who loves us. The gift of having Jesus' life as the way that our Father in heaven treats us. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to hear this. The heart of Christianity is not a demand, it's a gift. It's not a list of things you have to do, it is what God has done for you. And it's been paid for by the blood of his son, shed at the cross. Uh, A lot of us uh, this week have been praying for Ruth Field. Uh, Many of you will know David and Sue and uh, their kids Sarah, Ruth and Esther. Uh, He used to be an elder here at uh, Chessington. Uh, Boo and I met them when we were training at Oak Hill Theological College. And uh, Ruth has had throughout her life, has had cystic fibrosis. It sort of hung over the entirety of her life. And, and this week, uh, very suddenly and wonderfully, she underwent an, an operation to have a double lung transplant. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? It was the only hope she had for a longer life. Other lungs were a gift. They're literally not her lungs. Someone had to die for to have them Uh, there's a long way to go but but things seem to be going quite well at the moment Uh, David and Sue wrote this we will never know the identity of the donor nor the circumstances of his or her death but we will never forget we've been given a, a righteousness that literally is not ours it cost a death not by a tragic accident But the deliberate decision of the one who rules all things to die in our place. And we know the identity of the donor of our righteousness. 
Because Paul says it is the righteousness of God. You see, that's why it's so sad when people reject the news of Jesus out of hand. They're rejecting the most precious, the most beautiful gift that has ever been given. A unique thing. The very character of God, the very goodness of God, the very love of God, lavished upon you at no cost to you and every cost to him. It's why Paul says it can save anyone. Why is the gospel the power of God that brings salvation to anyone? Because a right relationship with God has nothing to do with what you do and everything to do with what he has given you. And how do you get this gift? It's the last thing. It's, he's unashamed because in the gospel, God faithfully gives by faith. Unashamed because God faithfully gives by faith. Look, look at verse 17 again with me. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Or, or literally, a righteousness that is by faith into faith. See, there's only one way to receive this gift of God, faith. Now, now faith isn't believing the unbelievable. Lots of people said that. Someone even, I heard, say that in the last week. Or, or faith suspending your mental faculties. Some people say to you, don't they, I wish I had your faith. A bit like they might say to you, I wish I had your blue eyes, as though faith is a, a genetically given thing that some people have and some people don't. But we all exercise faith. Faith is simple trust. You, you all have exercised faith this morning in a very simple way. You're sitting down on a chair. You, you exercise trust in this chair. Some of you, you know, maybe you, you, you have blind, you know, you, you're confident in your faith. You're just going, oh, yes. Yeah. Others of you may be a little cautious. You know, you're like... But you're all exercising faith in the chair. You, you're trusting the chair will hold you up. That's, that's all faith is. Trust in the Bible. Actively trusting somebody or something. Now, what is faith in Romans? Actively trusting that when God says in his Son, he has given you righteousness, he has given you righteousness. That's faith. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's a gift. There's nothing you have to do to earn it. It's a gift. Paul's actually going to spend the next two chapters of Romans saying actually there's no one who, who can live a, a life before God that, that means they can keep his law so that they are right with him. Now everyone needs this gift of righteousness from God. You see, faith is simply to open your hand so that you can receive the righteousness of God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there have been a number of people who have undergone surgery in, in our church uh, at the moment, who have ha- happened under general anaesthetic, undergone quite serious operations. And when, you, when you have surgery under general anaesthetic, you literally trust your life to someone else, don't you? I mean, it's not like the surgeon's going to wake you up halfway through and say, could you, could you just hold this for a moment, please? I'm running out of hands. Or, I wonder if you could work really hard at pushing the blood through your coronary arteries. There you go. You're anaesthetized. You trust the sur- surgeon. Something happens to you. You wake up. You hope it's worked. Well, faith is saying to God, I'm helpless. I'm guilty before you. Oh, I know that I'm not... The man or woman I should be, 
by my own standards, let alone your standards. I know I don't deserve a right relationship with you. I know I deserve your condemnation. But I believe you've given me the righteousness of your son through his death at the cross. And that means anyone can be saved. There are no requirements other than you acknowledge you don't have anything to offer this God. And you have to trust, don't you? Because it's not like when you look in the mirror in the morning when you trust Jesus, you can spot a difference. It's not that you're brushing your teeth this morning and the halo was lit up behind your head. If you're a Christian, you thought, yep, there's my faith. I know I'm right with God. That, that's why, why Paul quotes from Habakkuk, uh, a prophet from the 7th century, uh, down in verse 17, when he says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But back in Habakkuk's day, uh, he'd been told that God was going to bring a terrible judgment on his people, the people of Judah, through the Babylonian army. The problem for Habakkuk was, is he said, how do I know that's true? I mean, all I do is I look around at your people, it's moral chaos, nothing's changing, doesn't look like you're doing anything, God. And God says, no, the people who will come through my judgment, the people who are right with me, are the ones who trust that what I say is true. Uh, the alternative in Habakkuk is to be proud, to be self-reliant. You see, the, the, the terrible might of the Babylonian army was coming. There was nothing that Judah could do about it. They either, therefore, had to say, we're going to trust God's word of promise through this. Or, no, we can sort this out on ourselves, thanks very much indeed. And there were two results. The righteous will live. Life was one result if you trusted God. Death at the hands of the Babylonians was the other result if you didn't. You see, faith is trusting God's word that he's given you the righteousness of Jesus at the cross. His word of promise is true. It's what what the old hymn says, isn't it? What does the old hymn Rock of Ages say? It's to say to God, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And it's faith from first to last. Did you see that? It's by faith into faith. So we don't just start our relationship with God by trusting him. We trust him every single day. Every single day we say to God, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We're always recipients of God's righteousness. He always gives it to us. We never have to earn it. So every day, we don't have to make excuses for ourselves to God. He knows what we're like. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Every day, we know we're always forgiven. We're always loved. We're always treasured. We're always accepted. Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Why? Because we're open-handed. Nothing, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It's why understanding Romans 1.17 freed the German monk Martin Luther from the shackles of trying to live a life as, as a perfect monk. Listen to how Luther described his experience. I was a good monk, and I kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I was that monk. All my companions in the monastery would confirm this. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty, but always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out in your confession. 
The more I try to re remedy an uncertain, weakened, troubled conscience with human traditions, I daily found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. Is that you? Did you have times like that? Trying to live a good life and never quite having peace about it? Oh, I have times like that. You know, I go, I, I pray deeply to the Lord that I, I might be a better husband, a more gentle father, and then I walk out the door and I fail. So I go back in and I try harder again. And I walk out the door and I fail. Never quite living up to the standards you set yourself. Never quite becoming a person that, that you like. Constantly feeling a failure as a Christian. Well, listen to, to what Luther said after he came to see that the righteousness of God was a gift. That there was nothing he could do, nothing he could offer. He said, I felt as if I'd been reborn and gone through the open doors of paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas I formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as an inexpressibly sweet truth, a gate into heaven. So, so instead of God being a, a dark and disapproving figure brooding over you, looking down upon you, and irritated by your failure to live, up that, live out that good Christian life he has called you to, no, Luther discovers him to be a kind father who looks down upon him and sees a precious son who is always righteous and good and perfect and loving. It was understanding Romans 1.17 that actually drove Luther to, to be at the heart of what happened in the 16th century, the European Continental Reformation to go out and preach this good news, unashamed of the gospel, that the God was offering a right relationship with him as a free gift. You see, this is the good news that changes lives. It's the powerful good news. You see, it frees guilty consciences. It gives hope to those who are fearful of where they stand before God in death. It gives a certain love to people who can't love themselves. Because they don't have to. They're loved by God. It gives purpose to the lost. It gives freedom to those who are bound up in religion and effort seeking to, to daily make themselves into the person they feel they should be. It gives power to live life to the weak. Because however weak you are, you know God is for you. And you have a relationship with him that you cannot lose because you did nothing to earn it apart from to say, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. The righteousness given me in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian yet, let me ask you, do you want to hear more about this? This gift of God to you? We'd love you to hear more about this. Keep coming along to, to listen to Romans. It's a great place to be. Well, we have a course called Christianity Explored. It's like Ron Seal. It does what it says on the tin. It explores the Christian faith. 
over, over a, a few relaxed evenings, you can look into the person of Jesus Christ. We'd love you to come and test drive that course. At the FYI area, you can find some leaflets about it. It's starting in early October. Why don't you come along and hear more of the gift of God to you, of a right relationship with him? And those of us who are Christians, do we believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That God's good news about Jesus is powerful to save anyone. That God's good news about Jesus is about a gift of his righteousness given to you. That God's good news about Jesus is yours simply because you trust him. If if you believe this, would you go home and, and get out a bit of paper... And just write down the names of of three people you'd love to receive this gift. And start praying for them. If you're a bloke, will you go home and and just think, who who are three mates who maybe I could advise to the the curry night? Would you do that? You see, this is powerful, saving good news. We're going to see it spelt out in Romans. It changes lives. Let's pray we wouldn't be ashamed of it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that the gospel is your power of salvation for anyone. Lord, we know that because by it you've saved us and we're confident that when we stand before you, we will stand righteous. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he did for us as he gave his life on the cross. Father, we we know that we've only come into this gift because We've trusted you. You've opened our eyes and set our hearts upon you. It's your work in our lives. Please, Lord, would we, like the Apostle Paul, not be ashamed of this gospel. Like like Luther, not be ashamed of this gospel. But be confident in it. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And would we long to see others know this glorious gift of right relationship with you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, for his name's sake.